You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm speaking to Chris Gethard. Uh, Chris has a run, apparently no one calls him Chris, Gethard. Gethard has a run from uh, the 23rd of January to the something the 4th of February at the Soho Theatre in London. I really recommend the show. I saw it in Edinburgh. That's when I caught up with him for this conversation. And uh, I'm very grateful to the Place Hotel, uh, New York Place in Edinburgh, which is uh, used, uh, part of this is used as a venue by The Stand. Uh, So thank you to The Stand and thank you to the Place Hotel for giving me some space to record this interview with the wonderful Chris Gethard. Oh, and while I remember, please subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, your RSS feed, if you're into that sort of witchcraft. Remember to subscribe to the show because during December I'm going to give you a little Christmas treat and uh, it's not going to be online for long. I'm going to, it's as if I'm going to put up an episode that's only going to be around for a week. It's not an episode, it's something very different, but uh, make sure you're subscribed and you'll get hold of it. So now let's hear from Chris Gethard. I feel like I'm really late to the party on you. You're someone who is frequently requested as a guest on my show. Oh, that's very nice. And um, uh, I was really excited to see your show uh, here in Edinburgh. Then I, w- I was like, oh, great. I've got to get, uh, I've got to get Chris for the... It's it, Geth. You kind of go by Geth, do you? Yeah a, lot of, yeah, a lot of my friends call me Geth, yeah. I don't have any other friends called Geth, so I'm going to call you Geth. Sure, yeah. Right. <laughs> Everybody calls... Nobody calls me by my first name. Everybody in my life just calls me Gethard, except my wife and my okay. mom. My, my wife and my mom are the only ones who really call me... Chris. If your mother called you Geth, that would be like a Jack Reacher yeah, type situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's implausible. Yeah. But I, so I really, I love the show. And uh, I, because I said my baby's up here, I've done less research than I ordinarily would have been able to. And only very recently have I gone, oh my God, there's this entire phenomenon of the Chris Gethard show. I read some of your blogs online. You have a, a wealth of stuff out there that I have only scraped the surface of. So apologies if I'm approaching no, you. No, that's how that. everybody is. Like, I feel like I have a cult in New York. I have like a very cult following that is small but passionate, but I am far from a mainstream quantity in any, in any way. Um, so I, that, I get that a lot. It's funny. It's like, it is nice that like I've put out hundreds of hours worth of stuff because then when someone finds me, if they're going to get hooked, it's all sitting right there for them to get hooked by. So that's nice. But this is not, no need to apologize because this is not an uncommon thing. I hear this often. And this is, this is your first trip to the UK? It's your my first performance. My first performance. Yeah. I, I, I've been to London on vacation or holiday as I hear it's called, um, 
but yeah, this is my first. I did the Vodafone Festival in Dublin. That was my first time in Ireland. Edinburgh is my first time performing in the UK in any fashion. So yeah, it's really my first overseas. I've performed all over the all over North America, but uh, never overseas. And tell me, to what extent does the show that you're performing here represent your stand-up output? Is it a departure for you to do a show that is so kind of narrative driven it feels like a very edinburgh kind of a show yeah well that's the thing it's like uh, i didn't really know much about the edinburgh festival if i'm being honest like most american comedians who come here you tend to hear that they you know i don't want to be divisive but a lot of them hate it a lot, it's not it's very you can a lot of them tell me they hate it on this show yeah so feel free. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, we don't really have anything like this where you do the same show 26 27 nights in a row I think in America, you know, there's so many cities that are so close together that you can kind of like bounce around and do your set. And then, you know, because of New York and L.A. and Chicago, there is like you can get writing jobs, you can get acting jobs. So you can like work on material, go get a writing job, come back, do the same material. This whole thing where you write a new show every year and then do it for a whole month. That's like insane to us. So I've heard I've heard a lot of American comics say that it's kind of you feel like you're stuck in like. Groundhog Day, like the Bill Her- Bill Murray movie, and it has some elements like of it like that for me. But this show that I've worked on, it, it is it is a departure for me. It's like really the first narrative show I've ever put together, and I did all that. I didn't really know that that was what Edinburgh kind of embraces the most or focuses on the most. Maybe it seems fair to say. Um, and one of my agents actually, a lot of people say like, oh, agents are idiots. My agents, I really like them. And one of them said like, one of them pulled me aside. He saw me do the show. He's LA based. I'm New York based. So he actually saw me do it at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal. And he, he's a huge supporter of the Edinburgh Festival, big fan of it. And he was like, this is an Edinburgh show. You got to send it to Edinburgh. And I was like, isn't Edinburgh that thing where you like go and lose your mind halfway through and then everybody loses thousands of dollars? And he's like, ah, no, your show, I mean, your it, show it is, but you don't need it to do is. that. Yeah. But he was like, your show's built for it. Like your show has a real chance over there. So he really encouraged me and I just uh, took his word for it. And there was a point where I was like, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard horror stories, but I'm always kind of been the type of person that if something seems like a bad idea, or ch- like too challenging or, or scary. Like I'm like, well, that's what I should be doing. Like I don't just need to do the things that feel safe or feel like they're going to work out. I need to do the things that feel like a nightmare. And I, I heard this had real nightmare potential. So I signed up. Usually my stand up is definitely still storytelling based. I think I have that in common maybe with some of the more, you know, England, Scotland, Irish comics. I think I fit in stylistically here more with the storytelling. I'm not as punchline driven as a lot of the American comics. But this is definitely... I've never written a whole show that revolves around any sort of theme. Most of it's just like stories about growing up or whatever crosses my mind. And then, you know, I got the the Chris Gethard show is kind of like my biggest focus outside of stand-up. But nothing like this. This is, I think this is fair to say the show I'm doing here is like the most grown-up thing I've ever done. Sorry I ramble so much. Not at all. No, no, no. This is, there's, there's, uh, this is a, it's a safe space for ramblers. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> So tell us, um, for people who uh, won't have seen the show here, um, the show is called Career Suicide and really details yeah. several either suicide attempts or thoughts of suicide. And it's incredibly powerful. I, just, I love the show. Thanks. Thanks and for checking it out. One of the things I loved was you didn't chase a laugh ever. You yeah. were very happy just explaining the situation. And laughs arose 
And I don't mean by that that they were rose accidentally. You know, the, yeah. the funny stuff was funny, and the meaningful stuff was. I felt like I could have listened to you talk for hours and hours and hours. Thanks. I think the funny thing for that for me is like that's that's a very nice compliment. And the th- the thing that's encouraging about that for me is like I've I've been very hesitant to write anything that seems like the point where the message takes priority over the laughs. Um, like, cause I think, I don't know, being a New Yorker too, I don't know if you've spent much time in the New York comedy scene, but it's like, there's just an endless amount of shows going on. Like if I want to do five or six or seven or eight shows in a night, I can easily. And there's a real culture there of like, you can't be pretentious. You got to just go out, get your laughs, nothing easy, nothing where you're begging for it. Nothing where you're like bringing up a social point to try to get them on your side. Like go out, get your laughs. And it's cutthroat that way. And I, I, there's a lot of elements of that that I think are really, that make you very good as a comedian. So this show, I think I, I think I worked so hard on the parts that I know are funny. And I really tried to make sure that the funniest, like I wanted to make sure that the core bits, the core pieces, the core stories of it were as funny as any other stand-up I do. If that wasn't the case, I had no desire to do this show. Like I needed the laughs that do come to be as big as the laughs I can get if it's not about this or else I knew I was just talking about this stuff to exploit this side of my life experience. Like, I, And I don't want to do a show that's just about depression just to do it. I want to do a really, really funny show and if it happens to be about that, it's about that. But I think what's been really nice about the process of building the show is that I really put so much pressure on myself to make sure the funny parts were funny and that the laughs were laughs I was really proud of and that I was willing to stand by. And now those kind of feel like the parts of the show where as a performer, I can kind of relax the most and trust the most. And it's actually the other stuff. It's the vulnerable stuff or the revealing stuff that's very hard for me. That's not what I'm accustomed to doing as a comedian. So now I think I can kind of like put the laughs on the back burner, trust that they're there and kind of build out the other parts of the show. And it's nice because I think that that is such a challenge, but it also makes the laughs feel kind of like the most maybe confident or incidental part of the show when they're actually the thing that I was most hung up on. But I guess that's how it goes, right? You strengthen that muscle and then it's the one you have to think least about using. How does it feel to be crafting elements of the show where you are being vulnerable? It's really scary. I know like... Because I never really set out to do this show. I uh, I came up as an improviser. I started at a place called the Upright Citizens Brigade. And for years, probably the first six or seven years I was doing comedy, I was just doing improv. And then around 2006, I started really shifting over to solo performance, a lot of storytelling, and that, and that led into really going headfirst into the stand-up scene in New York. And uh, I wound up opening for Mike Birbiglia a few years back. He's a comedian I really admire, and especially as someone who does a storytelling-based style, he really has, like, I think, set the bar for that in the States. And, and I, I've, I've been texting him because I'm like, it is amazing you never did this festival. You would be like the king. He does all these narrative shows, and they're really beautifully crafted. And, and uh, we've been laughing about that. But I knew coming off my time as an improviser that I really needed to pay my dues as a stand-up. And I was opening for him for about a year. And, you know, you spend time on the road with someone... A big part of it is you're just like bored together, especially in the States. Like you'll do a show where you're like, all right, tonight we're in uh, Topeka, Kansas, 
And tomorrow we're in Des Moines, Iowa. So we're just going to drive across cornfields for hours and then perform at theaters that are both really nice, but pretty similar in these like small cities that are both nice, but pretty similar. You just wind up telling everybody everything. And he said to me, like, I've mentioned the depression stuff, you know, in passing in real life. And at times on stage, I've brought it up. And uh, he was like, what's the real stories? Like when you're not making jokes or not like having your guard up. What are the real stories? And I told him, there's a story in my show about a time I crashed a car. And I told him that. And that was like one of the only a handful of people in my life knew about that. And he was like, oh, that's hilarious. And I was like, no, it's not. And he's like, you have to tell that on stage. That's so funny. If you can get the laughs out of that, he's like, you're going to be onto something huge. Like, that is a story only you can tell. He's like, the way you handle things, like, you'll, you'll handle that in a way that's like just different than anyone else will. Just do it. And he really encouraged me to go up and try to start telling some of these stories. And I'd go on stage and tell them. And they were being met with some positive feedback from the audience. But I'd get off stage and be shaking. Just shaking. Because I think... One of the things I've learned from doing this show is like stand up. You really control the story. You control the narrative. When you're telling regular jokes, oh, so much of it is about audience manipulation, right? I'm going to walk you up to this and then I'm going to be, I'm going to like sit on it, sit on it, sit on it. And then I'll push you over the line or like I'm going to fill up this balloon with tension and then I decide when to pop it and you laugh. And it's like I'm controlling and dictating your reactions. But with this stuff, I was talking about things that are so genuinely not pleasant for me to think about that it was impossible for me to be totally in control. And that was hard. I was only doing it like once or twice a month in New York as I, as I built it and workshopped it. So that first like 15 times I did the show, I'd get off stage and like need to just slink into a corner and just kind of shake a little bit. Like, why am I going here? Because as you can imagine, just like any other sets, like there were times where it was just bombing or being met with silence. And it's like, why am I... We're going out here and rambling about like having paranoid delusions and being on antipsychotics to be met with confused silence. That is a hard <laughs> very therapeutic. Something that's said in, in your reviews, quite a lot of the reviews that I've read from your work here, it's like comedy as therapy or you know, yeah. that, that kind of line, which I don't I don't think it is. I mean then, I, then, I'm glad to hear you say that. I don't have any desire to be a therapist for anybody ever. I'm a comedian. It's all I want to be, I promise. In terms of the effect on you, it arguably doesn't seem, it seems like the opposite of comedy is therapy. <laughs> Build a, that doesn't sound like a therapeutic experience at I all. Mean, yeah, I definitely, I've spent years in therapy putting some of this stuff to bed and, and a lot of this show has definitely dredged it to the surface. But it is nice because once I got to a point of confidence with it, some stuff bubbled to the surface that I thought had been put to bed. But the, the happy byproduct is that now I kind of feel like this was such a trial by fire for me to talk about publicly that now I actually feel sort of more control over this aspect of my personality than I probably ever have. Um, and it's also been so nice to get feedback. Like to me, the ultimate goal would be to make a show that's so funny that anyone can, like, I, I want to get to a show where if people hear what it's about, they might go, ah, oh, that sounds pretentious, but where their friends go, no, it's really fucking funny. Like you got to go check it out. It's just a good comedy show. I want to get there and then have this second level where if you're someone who knows someone who's been depressed or you have been or you don't know much about it, that it might kind of give you a lot more. Like the, the best compliments to me have been when people have said like, your show was really funny, but it also made me think about this or like your show is really funny and it kind of let me know what this was like. That's really good. I'm, I'm wary some of the reviews that say like, oh, it's like therapy or there's been a few reviews that have been nice where the stars are nice. 
a nice amount of stars and that feels good. But then I read it where it's like, humor is not really the point of this show. And I'm yeah. like, oh no, I can't be one of those guys. I can't, I can't turn into one of those guys. So I'm pretty unforgiving. And I've definitely asked, especially, I'm, I don't know, you've dealt with American comics. They tend to be cruel people. And uh, I've asked a few friends of mine who I think are very much relentless, unforgiving people. I'm like, is this, am I making a comedy show here? Like you'd tell me, right? And they're like, no, yeah, it's comedy. You're good. You're good. Because I don't want to make something that feels like me getting up on a soapbox and trying to preach. Like, I don't. I don't want to be a therapist. I just want to get up and be funny and maybe... You know what I've realized is like, if you can be funny about something that's honest to you or unique to you, you're kind of dropping the ball if you don't go there, I think. You know? Anybody can write Trump jokes about Donald Trump right now, and people are writing very funny ones. I'm not judging that. Anybody can write jokes about Brexit. A lot of people at this festival are, and a lot of them are really funny. I'm not trying to talk down about that. But then there's some comics who I think speak to experiences that only they've had or that only they're willing to talk about. Those are always sort of like high watermark things that I enjoy seeing, you know? Someone said to me earlier today, in fact, I mentioned I was uh, interviewing you and I was just uh, spooking your show to them and saying, you've got to check this out. They said, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of the, the theme of this festival is mental illness. And there are enough between uh, Colin Holt's show, uh, which is uh, called A Sketch Show for Depressives. It's, it's a character show. Yeah. So I've yet to see it, but I will do. He's an excellent comic. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a huge variety of them. Is it on your radar at all that it almost could become the next version of doing Donald Trump jokes? Everyone does Brexit jokes. Everyone's got their mental illness. Big time. Show, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that around. This comes up on this podcast a lot from me <laughs> as much as anyone. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the trope of the sad clown is like a pretty tried and true discussion point with comedy and a thing that's, you know, both valid and problematic. And it's always been there. I will say, I didn't know. It seems from what I've picked up on, it seems like there's about, you know, half a dozen to a dozen shows about this this year. And I would actually say that if I knew that I've loved my experience here, I probably wouldn't have come just because I don't want to be looked at as part of any sort of trend. But then being here, I'm glad I came because I've, I've seen a bunch of, I just did a gala for mental health last night where a number of comics who I think have done shows about this performed and I was actually like oh this is actually really empowering to see that everybody's genuinely got something to say and is going for it and it, it does feel nice to be part of something I don't really want to be viewed as someone who's maybe hopping on something that's becoming increasingly popular it seems to be I've been working on my show for two years and it seems like maybe it is hitting the zeitgeist right in the same time yeah, I, I think it's less a case of uh, of hopping on and I think quite clearly from the content of your show no one could accuse you of that it, I suppose my question is more whether it, it, that really interests me that if you had known there were that many shows on a similar-ish subject, and we're talking thousands of shows here, so yeah. maybe as a so like 3,000, right? 3,000 shows 3, or something? 200. Something. It's interesting to me, that impulse, because for you, there is also a lot of control. You know, you're not buffeted entirely by circumstance, mental health, random chance. You know, you are a very shrewd comic and producer of your own material. Thanks. So it's interesting to me that you're like, well, I've got this show. Do I want to put it into a marketplace that might be oversaturated? Yeah. And I, I will say this, and I'm not trying to talk bad at all. I feel like I've said some, I feel like I flirted with saying some negative things. I'll also say this. We're how many days into the Edinburgh Festival? Oh, you're allowed to say be as negative as you want. What are we I'm starting, to, days in? I'm starting to go insane. I am yeah. starting to go insane. Never done anything like this before. I've been so impressed. So impressed. Right when I got to the Vodafone Festival in Dublin, 
that was the first time I realized that so many comics from Ireland, the UK, Australia, South Africa, Canada, it seems like everywhere but America, there are many comics who build their career around this festival. You write your hour, you bring it here, you get good reviews, you tour it around. I had no idea. I had no idea that there's a huge culture to this place. I will say, I think one of the knocks on it that maybe comes up amongst the American comics that come here is maybe some people write shows around a point strategically. I'm going, Absolutely. I'm going to write my show about blank, and that's the priority, not comedy. And that is a thing that I think a lot of uh, comics in general, I'm sure, especially the American comics have a problem with of like pick a social issue that's maybe the flavor of the day and turn over a fresh hour about it that year yeah successful next year you need another social right issue. or worse another personal issue this show is my struggle with ism x right this show is my struggle with this other thing that I didn't exactly like yeah. I would have to imagine that about three to four years ago there may have been a bunch of shows about the men's rights movement or things like that So this is Chris. A huge pleasure to talk to him. Uh, more from him in just a second. But the, we talked for so long, there's about two hours worth. Rather than split it into a double episode, I've got the whole of the second section now available as an extra. So you can go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras uh, and find all of the extras from previous episodes of the show. All you need to do is join the mailing list. Thank you very much to everyone that is on the mailing list. Can I just ask if you have a Gmail account and you didn't recently get an email from me telling you all about the tour and all the bits and bobs I've got coming up recently um, to check your promotions tab because apparently I put all of this work into making an email uh, that's you know once every whatever it is year and Gmail I believe sorts it automatically in promotions I can't do anything about that so if you dig in there and it's in there because I know a lot of people have said hey I didn't find an email I think you can click on it and drag it into your primary tab which then means that uh, it's like you whitelist me basically um, so anytime you get an email from info at comedianscomedian.com then uh, it goes straight to that and you don't miss out on it it doesn't get filed as spam sorry that's tedious I know but I'm putting so much work into the uh, growing my mailing list staying in touch with you and making you aware of all the things that I'm up to um, that it's so frustrating to spend all this time and money money as well costs money to send emails who knew and then you find loads of people on the Facebook group going I didn't get it so check in there check your spam folders um, I didn't send it to everyone because uh, as I said it's expensive so I just sent it to people who are fairly near places that I'm I'm going to be touring soon. If you're listening and you didn't get the email and you're interested in the tour, then by all means, please go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour and you can find out where I'm playing, hopefully near you. I've already had some angry replies. What? No Aberdeen? Look, I can't go everywhere. As soon as I'm getting 30 people in Aberdeen saying, why aren't you coming to Aberdeen? You better believe me, I'll go to Aberdeen. But I'm doing my very best at the moment to do as many places as I can within the, the restraints of uh, uh, budget and time and things like that. So um, that's where all the information is. Um, this extra bit with Geth that I should tell you, the whole second half of the interview, Geth talks about improv. Um, he's one of the best improv teachers around, so you should definitely give that a go. Um, he also discusses how he deals with hecklers, um, which is a particularly interesting technique, plus the eye-opening moment that made him realise how wrong his whole approach to stand-up was. All of those bits and more in a good solid 50 minutes to an hour of extra Chris Gethard stuff available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras. Now, 
Before we go back in, very quickly, if you are interested in being part of the cavalry, you remember these guys, the guys that came over the hill last time and helped me out with the tour? If you have a workplace or a local calf that you're friendly with or anywhere that you think you could put a poster to encourage people you know to come along with you to come and see the tour show, uh, then please do that. Send me an email with info at comedianscomedian.com and uh, give me the subject line. Just put the subject line cavalry. And I will accept cavalry because it's a frequent spelling mistake um but uh, get in touch and basically i send you some posters and then you can put them up and spread the word and that was really useful i sort of i mean i don't know i i, I as i did it last year i was like this is mad and then people did it and it seemed to work so i feel like i should do it again i hope you don't think it's too self-aggrandizing to suggest that that uh, you help me mobilize and, and get more people in but i'd really appreciate that as i do your donations of course uh, all of those people who've recently um set up a, a recurring payment of for example two pounds a month more or less is also acceptable by going to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate very much appreciated and thank you for your one-off donations as well people are frequently sending me uh, as much as they would spend on a bottle of wine or a pound a show but that's getting hard now because we're nearly at episode 200 i've got some just blinding guests coming up for you many of you i mean god we've sold half the tickets already for uh, the 23rd of january john robbins and ellis james who as you know do a fabulous podcast together that i'm a big fan of and a radio x show um, so they're going to be at the Soho Theatre for a special live ComCom. So please get yourselves down there. I've just recorded one with Fern Brady this morning. That was terrific. A really good episode. Very excited about that. I've got Angela Barnes coming up. I'm doing a special drunk Christmas Pappies one. Pappies are returning to the show. And um, plus, I've got some Americans left over. I mean, I've still got to bring you Brian Regan, uh, who I, I managed to grab for half an hour at the Montreal Comedy Festival earlier this year. Joe DeRosa, I managed to grab while he was in Edinburgh. So lots, lots lots more stuff coming your way um, and also just keep them peeled for the rest of the uh, the Soho live shows that's uh, John Robbins and Ellis James on the 23rd of January and then I've got three other shows as well which are as yet unbooked they're on sale and I'm going to find great people keep an ear out for what goes on with those so please continue supporting the show with either a cash donation visiting me seeing the live show not visiting me visiting the live show uh, coming to see the tour bringing friends or for those of you who are poor impoverished students uh, feel free to or anyone that hasn't got a couple of quid to spend which let's face it is more and more of us these days um, then feel free to simply take the phone of one of your friends open their podcast app and uh, and subscribe to this show share it with them and uh, and find someone that they're into uh, who is uh, who's on the, the recent guest list and uh, and get them involved so thank you very much for listening as ever let's get back to chris gethard one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Most recent cliche is uh, your dad dies 40 minutes through the show. That's right. like a running joke in the comedy community in the UK. I think men's rights has been less touched upon, but I think it's less... Yeah. It's a big internet issue in the UK. Right. I, or maybe it's coming then. Or yeah, maybe it's, if, sure it it hadn't, if it didn't come a few years ago, then it, there may be first. a wave of that <laughs> in the future. You can kind of pick the issues that, that comedy lends itself to. Feminism a few years ago. Oh, yes. Brilliantly. Some fantastic shows. I'm sure, I'm sure some very, very fantastic shows, and then I'm also sure a lot of other shows. Couple right? Anyone going, would say. Oh, yeah, this is selling. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So... I, I will say that when I caught wind of the fact that there seems to be an upswell of shows about this, the reason I said I might not be, might not have brought it here is because I would be very wary of being viewed as someone who exploited my own life experience just to have a show. And I think that is from the outsider's perspective. And I, I think Americans tend to be a little bit more. I do get that sense. I get that. I hear a lot of jokes of like, Oh, an American, what are you going to complain about about this festival? Or like, you didn't know what you were getting into, yeah. right? Like a lot of that. I think people know that we're a little bit outside the, uh, the focus of the festival at large. And I think one of the knocks from the outside is, yeah, people pick an issue and then they start the comedy. And I wouldn't want to be accused of, of such, if I'm being totally honest. I don't know any, if anybody else is. And the more I kind of look into the other shows and the more I've seen and performed with people, the more I realize, oh, actually, that was probably me being a little ignorant or being a little presumptive about other people's intentions. But it's too important to me. It's too personal to me. Both my personal experience and my integrity as a comedian are too important to me to risk being sort of viewed as someone riding a wave or trying to write towards something that's not just comedy. I think there's also an element whereby journalists love to pick up on and thereby create yes. the latest. Yes. It's all about this this year. And you go, well, I think if someone wrote an article saying everyone was doing a show in which they wore a hat this year, you'd probably notice more. Yeah, shows. I actually just before... This is the worst example. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> no, but it's valid. I just, just before I came here to meet you, I had an interview with someone who, who was writing an article about all the mental health-driven shows at Edinburgh this year. And it, it was very, very... <laughs> they better uh, get their skates on. That article is out there already. <laughs> oh, there's been many. There's been a number of them. But but this this interviewer, very nice, very nice. If she hears this, I'm not, I'm not mad or upset, but you could kind of see what her article was going to be about because she kept asking me, do you think comedians need to be talking about mental health? And I kept saying no. And she kept rephrasing the question because she wanted me to say, yeah, we need to be saying this. But what I kept saying was, I think comedians need to be honest. I think comedians need to be taking risks. And if your honest experience or the risky thing you can talk about, in my case, the scariest thing I can talk about is the fact that I've had a number of breakdowns in my life or that I've actually tried to hurt myself or that I've taken medications that have totally rocked me with side effects. That's the scary. That, that phase of my life was so scary. The, the first time when I was a kid, I think I was 22 when I first went on antidepressants and I had horrific side effects. I had all, there's certain things that I don't get to talk about in my show because they actually are too, I've, I've tried and it, it's too much of a turnoff. It's beyond comedy. But like I had all this short term memory loss and all my relationships were being affected. And I, I was too scared to say to people, oh, I'm actually taking these drugs and that's why I'm being so weird. And to me, that's the scariest thing I can talk about. That's the most honest thing I can talk about. So as a comedian, I feel like, yeah, honor bound. I should be talking about that. I don't think comedians need to be talking about mental health. I think if there's a lot of comedians who have dealt with this stuff, 
who are willing to talk about it, who feel like that's what they have to say and that's what they can make their comedy about and they can and they can make funny comedy about it. I think that that's a very beautiful, inspiring thing. I don't think comedians need to talk about stuff. I think anything that gets a laugh is what a comedian needs to be talking about. If they are someone who has enough life experience to layer that with some other things, then yeah, I'm down. I'm ready to watch anybody who actually has something to say. I don't think we need to be talking about mental health. I'm happy that I am. I'm happy to see that a bunch of other people are. Just last night, I did that gala. I saw a, a bunch of comedians really who had something strong to say about this stuff. That's beautiful. You don't need to. It's funny. I've thought a lot about, I don't know, now I'm off on a rant, but I've thought a lot of people, you know, as, as people have asked me more and more about this, I'm, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to put myself in the same level as any of these people, but I do think you look at like George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and how they so clearly like took on censorship in America. They really kind of cracked open this idea that America was like a little too puritanical and oppressive in their era. It's awesome. You look at so many African-American comics where I think you can probably argue truthfully that there were a lot of racist people in the era of Richard Pryor who the first African-American that they liked in life was probably Richard Pryor because he was funny. But he also went head on talking about a lot of stuff about his experience and the experience of his community. Probably the first time some people had to honestly face down how they thought or how they were raised was because they liked Richard Pryor's jokes enough to listen to him. So I do think seeing all the mental health-driven shows here, it makes me realize maybe there is a world in which this is a stigmatized thing or a taboo thing to talk about. And there is a little bit of a movement of comedians saying, well, if if we can talk about it, that is a pretty good step. The fear is that people go, oh, I'm on antidepressants, let me write my show. The hope would be that there's a lot of comedians out there going, I'm going to write jokes that are so fucking funny that they're undeniable. And if they happen to be about antidepressants, that's awesome. Maybe if some parents who are as confused as my parents were about all this stuff can see this show, the conversation will be a little easier between them and their kids than it was between my parents and, and me. It's all backburner stuff to the laughs, but it is cool to see. It's very cool to see. Is, is there an element that is cathartic for you in talking about this stuff? And is that element in the writing of the show or the performance of the show, particularly bearing in mind when you're doing 26 shows in a row? Yeah. There are moments of my show that make me, sometimes if I hit it, they make me well up a tiny bit. And not in a visible way, I think, but in a bit where I go, oh, just watch your breath because this is, <laughs> this is important to you and you don't want to be yeah. weeping in your show because that looks like a move, you know? Yeah, for sure. There's a few stretches of my show where, I mean, I've done this show. I did this show for a couple of years in the States before I brought it here. And now I'm 15 or 16 performances in. And it's funny. I've actually found that as I've done it more, there's a few points that I'm actually finding that now that I'm so on top of the material the emotions coming back. Like there's a stretch where I talk about the behavior of the first doctor I saw and I really did not appreciate some of the things that went down in that relationship and I find myself getting genuinely very angry about it on stage now. And I think I've turned a point where it's an hour of material that's a lot to wrangle. It's personal material that's hard to kind of reconcile and now I'm on top of those aspects of it and I find myself getting pretty furious at my old doctor again in a way that I haven't really felt since I put all that to bed a couple years after it happened. So that's been interesting. I would say that the truly cathartic part for me, though, is in some of the reactions I've got from people who want to speak to me after the show. Like, there's two interactions that happened in New York that really blew my mind that made me kind of take a step back and go like, whoa, where there was one where a girl came up to me and she goes, I used to date somebody who, who was really like dealing with depression stuff. And she's like, I'll be honest. She's like, I watched your show and it was really funny, but I also feel so bad because like, 
it was really irritating to date this guy and it was really hard and I thought he was being really annoying and eventually I just kind of like bailed on him and I feel horrible right now and I was like first of all I don't think you need to feel horrible it is really annoying to date I, a lot of women I dated will say it was a horrifically annoying experience like I get it so don't feel bad and she said she's like I feel like listening to you I kind of realized what he might have been thinking a little bit more and I feel awful and I was like I bet if you emailed him that that would be nice I bet if you emailed him and said hey it's been a few years I've grown up a bit I'm sorry that I just like disappeared on you. I didn't know how to handle it, but now I, I I get the sense it must have been really hard for you and I probably didn't make it better. I'm sorry, but that would mean a lot to him. And she was like, you think so? You think that would help? And I was like, yeah. And she honestly took out her phone and just like ran away to go send this email. And I'm like, that's cathartic to realize that some people who, especially because it's nice. I'll get other people who are like, yeah, I'm depressed. And that was on target. That was honest. Like you, you were speaking to it. In a way that's pretty on target. That's cool, man. That feels good. But more, I had another interaction where a couple saw the show and they emailed me afterwards and said, our son is very young, but he's clearly got some issues going on. We brought him to see a, psych- a psychiatrist or a therapist, whatever, because he's really clearly dealing with some stuff, even at a young age. And, and they said medication that's been suggested to us, but we're like, the kid's seven years old. Like, we don't want to put him on these pills and... They said, you know, we're not convinced yet, but our show has made us realize that those are maybe some of our values we were raised with, and we're going to be a lot more open-minded and listen to these doctors as doctors and uh, consider it a little more honestly. And that, to me, is hugely cathartic. Because like I said, I, I, I'm very, I think I'm a nice guy and I'm a very mild-mannered guy. I'm also intensely driven by a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness about some of the ways in which I grew up and some of the people I had to deal with growing up. And I think one of the things that I'm really pissed off about is like, felt just on my own when I was dealing with this stuff, tried to talk to people, tried to talk to older people and they had nothing to say, tried to talk to friends and they felt so uncomfortable. Gets me really mad because I just, now I'm 36 and I'm on the other side of it and I'm a married guy and I'm, I'm living a pretty happy life and I'm like, it didn't have to be that hard. It didn't have to be that hard. It was just people are made so uncomfortable to even have this conversation. So hearing that somebody's ex-girlfriend might send them a nice email, hearing that somebody's parents might be a little more willing to let their kid have their own experience instead of have their experience defined by their parents' perceptions of how this stuff should go. That is the stuff that I'm like, hell yeah, I'm glad I wrote this show because the byproduct of my comedy is that some other people like me might get a little bit of an easier time than I had. That's awesome. And to me, that's like, I'm, I like grew up listening to punk rock music. And that's what punk rock was all about. Of like, we're going to say the shit that nobody was saying when we needed to hear it. You can have a little bit more weight off your shoulders because we're angry and we're going to express our anger. And now it's out there. So you now do something about it. And I feel good in that sense of like some kid, his parents might let their guard down. Good. My parents didn't know how. I'm not mad at them. They're the best. My parents are great. They didn't know how to deal with this. Tried to bring it up and they didn't know what to say. It sucked. It was not easy for me or them. So if I can do something that makes a handful of people have a little bit of a, an experience that gets shifted away from that, I would be really proud of that. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of um, Jackie Cation. Yes. You know, Jackie does the Dark, the Dork Forest podcast. Yes, yes, yes. She was on the show last year, and uh, I kind of put it to her that she was sort of a champion of the nerds. She yeah. was like she was like the tough nerd everyone could rally behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you have a similar quality whereby, and particularly in some of your writing, some of your blogs that you link to from, from your website, um, there's a blog that you wrote in the wake of another high school massacre 
Yeah. And talking about your own feelings of like identifying with that type of kid who, and the recognizing some of the things they were talking about. Yeah. Those feelings of resentment, those feelings of, yeah, those feelings of resentment effectively. And, and the way, and I would direct anyone to it. I think I put a thing on the, the Facebook group for this podcast recently saying, okay, I don't want to lose you to Geth <laughs> because <laughs> anyone who's enjoyed any of, any of these episodes is going to go, Oh, this is the fucking, you know, oh, that's load. nice. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I, want to steal anybody's. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, you are very, very articulate and helpful in the way that you say, look, here is what I would have said to that kid. And here's what I'd say to you, if you feel the same, and here's how that can be applied to other feelings of resentment when you're the loser, when you're the outcast and it's about working on yourself, but you say it in a non patronizing yeah. way. It's an incredibly powerful piece of writing. That's nice to hear. And it's funny because you know, this, the TV show that I do, the Chris Gethard show appropriately enough, it had this thing that like, I got cast on a sitcom in the States years ago and it bombed. I read about yeah. this. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about it. And this. I was walking a very traditional path before that. You come up, you do your improv, you do your stand up, you get noticed, the agents find you, you go on auditions, you get a job, and now great. Yeah. You, you've uh, proven something. And I got that show and it bombed and it didn't prove anything. It was like, Oh, that didn't make me that happy when I got it. it didn't make me that sad when it failed. It was really such a nice wake-up call because I was like, I don't want another sitcom. I don't even watch sitcoms. Why do I want to be on one? <laughs> I wonder how many comics are yeah. going, oh, God, I don't watch sitcoms either. I it's just think true. I'm, I think I'm trying to do that because everybody thinks I'm supposed to do that. Well, how many comics do you see who get these sitcom jobs and then they never promote the sitcom, but they're, they just start touring relentlessly because they realize, no, I need to stay in touch with something that feels cool and feels like me. So I built this public access TV show. Which I don't know if... Do you guys have public access we over here? We don't have public access. I, don't, I mean, I think it exists, but it's nothing like as popular. I think there are small... It's not popular in the States. It's I a, don't think it's even that popular. It's I a think, weird, dead medium. It was a thing I think that... The, the UK would recognize it in terms of Wayne's World. We yes. Know, okay, Wayne's World was a... Exactly. A, 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 so it's a cultural reference. Thing. Yeah. It's a dying thing. It's a, it's, it's a dying thing in the States because the internet, you can put up YouTube videos now, but... There was this public access studio in New York that had like a three camera studio and we could take live calls and we started doing it there. And that was where I started realizing, oh, the fact that I was doing it that way was attracting a certain type of person. And the fact that I was like sort of a visibly angry nerd who maybe was expressing that in a way that wasn't lashing out, but was definitely saying like, hey, not everybody gets a fair shake and not all of us get to win. I'm a loser. I used to be on a sitcom. Now I'm on public access TV a year later. That is a career downfall by anybody's measure, but I'm cool with it. I'm I'm okay being a loser. It made a lot of other people who I think feel like outsiders or feel like losers kind of rally around me. And that incident you mentioned, there was this shooting in California and it was this kid who was very much someone who, as soon as I saw him, I was like, he could have been me, or he could have been one of my fans right now. Some of these kids who watch my show, they're 15, 16 years old, and they feel like girls don't like me. They feel like adults won't listen to me. And it scared the shit out of me because you look into this guy's story, and what happened is it turns out he was going on all these uh, internet message boards. He was going on like Reddit, the men's rights message boards. There's one called the Red Pill, and there are these very insidious things where these older men who I think maybe were cut from this cloth, have become women haters. 
women are idiots. Women keep us down. Women manipulate us. They use us. They tease us. Here's how you can dominate a woman. It ties into all that like pickup artist stuff of mm. here's how you can basically use these social techniques to sleep with a woman. And then, but these groups go even further. They say sleep with the woman and then yeah, walk away, never talk to her again, teach her her lesson. Mm. And it's insidious. And I looked at that stuff. You, you read about this kid being involved in these groups. And then I, I looked at these groups and it was like, Oh, this is like the, evil dark side. I am so close to this in what I say, but it doesn't have a hateful aspect, but it does have this feeling of don't settle for just letting the world at large tell you how things have to be. Don't settle for being the person who gets pushed around. Do something about it. For me, I've always said, do something about it. Make art. Find the other people like that. Build your own community of people who identify and box out all the people who don't want to give you a chance, don't want to cut you any slack, want to judge you for how you look or how you were raised or how much money you have. Like we don't live in a world where you have to settle for the circumstances you were born into anymore. You know, you can be someone who got bullied in school and eventually you can walk away from that and you can find whole groups of people who maybe are similar and you guys can team up and life can be happier. I think that's kind of the message behind a lot of my show and a lot of my work and seeing that there was this dark side to that where some people could maybe stumble into a track that had such a similar message but then took this turn of and then lash out at the world and turn it into kind of hate. And then it led to some people getting killed. To me, it was like, no. And that men's rights community in New York or in America, they really came at me. They hated me for a while. There were people writing blog pieces about how I was a... They have names to make fun of you. Yeah, you're a, a white, white knight, knight or an SJW. If, or, yeah, if yeah. some if you're someone who who vocally says, no, I think women maybe generally have it rougher than men and have more to fight yeah. through, which I think by any objective measure is just true. Of course. They it's can just true. into their narrative whereby you're doing that on purpose. You're a white knight. Yeah. You're just here to curry favor with women so you can be popular. It's like, no... I think it's just factual. A couple of centuries, two centuries ago, women were married and literally sold for sheep. You literally had to pay pay a, a, a groom's family in goods to take the woman off your hands. This is, they had it rougher. This is in recent times. This is we have the court records from this yeah. system. Women were not yeah, allowed. It's not to, theoretical. That's no, it's not <laughs> theoretical. In in most democracies, including the one I was raised, women weren't allowed to vote. For hundreds of years after men were. It's objective. Women have had it rougher. I'm not a white knight. You can't call me a name for saying that. Because I say that the gay community has had to deal with a lot of stuff that the straight community hasn't. I'm not a social justice warrior. Because I say that rape victims are oftentimes put through the ringer when they go to police who don't believe them, I'm not a social justice warrior. I'm not anti-man. I'm just the logical human being. And uh, I think there are maybe a lot of nerdy outsiders who feel a little burned by life or who feel a little forced onto the fringes who have found me. And uh, I'm maybe saying some things in response to that that don't feel like the most troublesome, violent, dark shit. And I think I have found that a lot of those people have built the core of my cult audience because they're like, great, you can say that you kind of got, took it on the chin. You can say you got bullied. You can say that life handed you a raw deal and not turn into a fucking lunatic for it. And you can even say, I'm not going to just sit there and take it. And that doesn't mean you start lashing out at 
minority groups or or picking up guns or talking shit about women on the internet. You can actually put it towards something positive. I'm glad that maybe I represent that to some people. It's not that it was my priority. I didn't set out to be that, but I'm glad my comedy has wound up being that pocket for some people to wind up in. I think part of what makes that writing and your shows so powerful is your honesty in recognizing elements of that in yourself. The fact that in that piece of writing you're saying, look, I recognize feeling like this. I recognize feeling that resentment. I also think I, I think one of the things too is I've read a lot about this stuff and I try, I've tried to learn. I'm a nerdy guy. I'm like, I love information in general. You know, I'm like stereotypical that way. Like I'm someone who grew up loving Star Wars and I memorized the Star Wars encyclopedia when I was in high school. Like I just love knowing stuff, but I've learned more and more, but I actually with my show kind of consciously avoided talking about any facts or figures that I learned retroactively after my experience. Like I, when I was probably about, it was really sad. I don't want to get too sad, but like there was a kid who went to my college in New Jersey, Rutgers. And about four years ago, he, he got bullied. He, he was a, he was a gay kid. I don't think he was totally out. And another kid in his dorm, his name was Tyler Clementi. His roommate set up a webcam. The guy said, oh, I need the room. I have somebody coming over tonight. And the kid set up a webcam and then him and a handful of his friends watched this guy hook up with a dude. And the kid wasn't out of the closet completely yet. Kid wound up jumping off a bridge and killing himself. I never, ever, ever talk about this. I've never, this is an exclusive. I've never talked about this. That was a turning point for me. I think I need to maybe talk about some of this stuff in my work because I, I know what it feels like to be bullied. I know specifically what it feels like to have a bunch of meathead kids in a dorm at Rutgers University pick on you for being different. I know what it's like to make that make you want to kill yourself. I know that feeling. When that kid killed himself, I remember feeling like, not that I could have done anything and not that it's my job, but like that kid, he might have lived in my dorm room. Like that's not outlandish to say. He's a freshman at Rutgers University. I lived in the freshman dorms. I got picked on. I had a bunch of lacrosse players that lived in my floor. They really tormented me, made my life hell, really brought my depression to the surface. They didn't cause anything, but experiences like that, they can throw fuel on the fire. So that was a thing that really woke me up and made me realize I need to let my guard down and speak to this because what if, what if, what if, I wrote this, what if, I've written a bunch of stuff and I've done the show. What if that kid found out there was somebody else who wasn't just dealing with this stuff, not just talking about it, but who went to his school what if he had that? Might have helped. I don't know. Probably wouldn't have. I'm not going to claim it would. I'm not a hero. I'm not hung up on this idea, but that opened my eyes. But anyway, that was a sidetrack. After that happened, I actually wound up reading so much about this stuff because I was 31, 32 years old when that happened. And I was at a point where I was a little happier, a little bit more on top of my stuff and wound up finding out a lot of people when they break mentally, when their depression sets in the worst, if they get suicidal, schizophrenia tends to set in, university age. I didn't know that. Imagine if I knew that. Imagine if when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and I felt like, oh, I am losing my mind. This is terrifying. If that was public knowledge. Well, a lot of people, if they, if they lose their mind, it happens when they're 20. I bet I would have not felt so scared. Mm. I bet I would have maybe been a little bit more open to speaking to someone about it because the fear is you're going to go in and talk to a shrink and say, I think I'm losing my mind. I feel like people are following me around campus. And I'm intellectually aware that no one is following me. 
but emotionally I'm scared every day because I think people are following me and tracking me. You're going to sound insane. You feel like, oh, they're going to throw you in a loony bin. Well, if I had known that, maybe it would have been so much easier. Maybe I wouldn't have felt like they were going to throw me in a loony bin because I would have known they probably heard that before. So that stuff was really eye-opening. Like, I, I sat in a show with someone yesterday. I sat next to a stranger who was checking his stocks and shares portfolio on his iPhone for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the show. Wow. And that, it, yeah, it's rude. I it's also... Was so, I was shaking with anger. I was visualizing... <laughs> of all physically things, Physically attacking. Yeah. something as tiny as that. When you, but that's also as a comedian. Like, it's not even like he's checking text. He's checking oh, stocks. stocks. Yeah. It's yeah, like the yeah, opposite yeah. Like, of I'm comedy. I'm the worst person. Yeah. yeah like comedians. On, I compla- You know, I, I, I asserted myself to him in a non-physical way. You did. You said times. something. Yeah, absolutely. I did. And then he did it again, and then I said something else again, and he made a joke at my, at my expense, and I sat there shaking with anger and visualizing, specifically visualizing uh, biting his ear. Yeah, I thought yeah. That'd be quite a, that's quite a physically dominating thing to do. Oh, Maybe yeah. I'd get away with that. No, he obviously punched me in the face and sort of physically dominate me, I'm sure. <laughs> the, the, point, the, way I realize, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is that that made me so angry I was visualizing violence. I've never been physically bullied. I've been, you know, as much as any yeah. kid, a slightly odd kid, but I, I think I was kind of confident enough to ride it out or at least, you know, do that thing where you dodge the wave and the wave hits someone else. I think I've done that a few times. Having never been bullied, I such a, a low tolerance before I can visualize myself snapping. You've managed to wield that anger into something positive. How did you do that? How did you not snap? How did you, how did you not physically attack the people who were physically attacking well, you? Well, first of all, I'll say I did. I had a very violent childhood. I kind of hint at it in the show that there was a lot of violence in my childhood. I talk about it a little bit. I think looking back on it from the adult perspective, one of the things that I think was most troublesome for me is like, A, Clearly, chemically, I was prone to this stuff. There's a lot of it in my family. There's also a ton of alcoholism in my family, which I think is probably chemically rooted in the same thing. But B, I grew up in a, you know, born in 1980, grew up in a blue collar place. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of bullying. And I mentioned it in the show. My brother really took it on the chin. My older brother is even nerdier than I am and such a sweet, innocent kid and uh, walked into a situation where he had no chance. And got bullied bad physically, emotionally, all of it physically. I mean, one of my earliest memories standing on the front porch of my house and my brother, this was when I was young enough. I wasn't even in school and my brother coming home at lunch. School was at the end of our block. So kids could come home for lunch and him coming home and crying and saying they beat me up again. It's one of my earliest memories made me so defensive and scared, but it was violent. One of the things that was a huge, huge problem in my life is that I saw that. I saw everything that happened with my brother. And I think my brother would be the first to say he was a very sensitive soul. He didn't fight back that much. He just kind of wondered why it was happening and made do with it and became a very creative, odd, hilarious guy who eventually got through the really darkest parts of stuff. And in college, he really found a lot of friends and blossomed. And like many people in college, he the fact that he liked weird music and that he knew about the weird comedy. He was meeting the other people who were interested in that. And his life is very happy now. I was younger than him. I think he would be the first to say you could debate who kind of had more long lasting negative effects to his bullying. He had a lot. I did too, because I, I saw him and I was like, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I was this little kid. I was a late bloomer. I went through puberty later than everybody else. I mean, I got in fights all the time. I was just kind of, I grew up thinking like, I'm not going to let that happen to me. So if anybody ever messes with me, it's on. And I remember my parents always say, my parents always 
it's funny. Like they, my wife now, she knows me as like a pretty relaxed person, but they always say like, you'd be surprised this kid. He used to come home banged up, but he dished it out too. And I just, I was angry and I was violent up until my early twenties. The last fist fight I got in, I, I got in a fist fight when I was probably 22 or 23 years old. And that was the last time I got in a fight, but I was a scrapper. I was a violent person because I grew up in a violent place. I remember there was a kid in my neighborhood who used to just kind of like follow me to school. He was older than I was and a few other kids. And he used to just, they'd show up this crew. He'd make fun of me. And, uh, it was to make these other older kids laugh, but it was a classic situation. He was the pipsqueak in this crew. So I was younger and I was even smaller. He was messing with me. And I remember it happened about four or five times. And after school one day, he, I saw them coming and I was just of this mindset where I was like, okay, he wants to do this. This isn't going to stop. I have to stop it. No one's stopping it for me. I've talked to people about it. I've talked to teachers. Nah, it ha- it's happening off school ground. Nothing we can do. Okay. So he walked. I'll never forget. There was this church attached to my junior high school, middle school. I don't know what you guys call it over here. You guys, that was, that sounded very aggressive. I don't know what it's called here, but sixth, seventh, eighth grade, junior high school. It was this church and we all used to cut through the church parking lot walking home. And if that was the school's policy, if you were six steps off school grounds, they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with it. And and I look back, that's so messed up, but we were in this church parking lot and I saw him coming. It's like, yeah, here comes John and his cronies were with him. He walked up to me and he was behind me and he always used to go, you're so, because my glasses always slid down my face and I always used to be pushing them up, pushing them up. And he always used to mimic doing that to me and go, oh, you're really cool, man. You're really cool. And mimic pushing his glasses up. And I heard him say at one time behind me, he went, you're really cool. And I dropped my backpack. So he knew I was like, I'm going to give him one warning. Yeah. I dropped my backpack off my back and I stopped walking and he said it again. I just turned around and just put him on his ass, just punched him right in his face. I mean, right in his face. And he went down and I just got on top of him and hit him a few more times and got up and walked away. And he was crying and his friends were making fun of him now. And I was just like, better you than me, motherfucker, better you than me. And that was kind of my attitude. I remember, I mean, I remember one time in gym class, eighth grade, this kid, big kid, one of these kids, I was one of those kids who didn't hit puberty until like 17. And then this other kid who was one of these kids who hit puberty when he was like nine, he was picking on me. And I remember he picked me up in gym class. He kind of threw me down and we had been playing badminton in gym and he threw me onto a pile of badminton rackets and I picked one up, broke it over his head. Like I was a violent kid. I was a, I was genuinely a violent person growing up. A lot of anger, a lot of violence, had to put that to bed. So in terms of putting, cause I'm just thinking like now the narrative I'm thinking of is more like oh and this is how Gethard became the leader of the school bullies and now right, went on right. to work in some awful kind of investment right. banking situation where he's a shark you know yeah. so talk to me about putting that to bed was that through performance was, was there some sort of moment where you went I can put my energy into this instead being in it it was like a real maelstrom but looking back on it now what happened was I went to college and I got out of my hometown my college was a very it was a state school. I don't, in, in the states, do you have do you have that here? Private universities and yep. state funded, mm-hmm. and the state ones are a little more like blue collar, shittier. Yes, so now with universities, I think everyone has to pay for university now. But yeah, okay. it has been like that in the yeah. industry. Yeah, we everybody has to pay in the states. But you know, there's Harvard, which is private, and then there's Rutgers, which is the New Jersey state school, and it's cheaper. And a lot more of the kids who grew up in working yeah. class neighborhoods go there. So it's still very working class. But that being said, I got to college and uh, I'd tell stories about my hometown and I thought they were funny and people would be disturbed. People would be sitting there like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, you didn't have a thing where 
all the African-American kids and all the Korean kids in your school got in a fight and then kids from other towns started showing up to fight and then they got on the loudspeaker and said everyone needs to just go home. You didn't have that? You didn't have that breakout in your school where you had to like get out? You just had to flee because there was so much violence happening that they just sent you home early? That's not funny to you? And they'd be like, no, that's... That's fucked up that you had to deal with that. That's that's scary that that's how your school was run, that it could like turn into chaos like that. And I, I started realizing that all these things that happened to me weren't happening to everyone else. And I got so mad and so scared and sad from that. I think that's when the bottom fell out. When you realize how, like when you're in something, when you're in a situation, I was in a situation where I was fighting a lot, where that was just kind of the rule of things. Go deal with it. Kids, go deal with your own stuff. Handle it yourself. Be tough. Then you get to a situation where you realize, oh, that's not how it is for everybody. The fact of it being so unnecessary. Unnecessary. I think that's as someone very close to me has been through, you know, through up and down depression, like sometimes very serious. Yeah. And what the tragedy of it, and it makes me cry. Yes. Is it's unnecessary. I dealt with that when I realized, oh, not everybody had to deal with this. This real feeling of just like bitterness and sadness came over me. And that's when the bottom fell out. Freshman year of college, the bottom really fell out. And also it wasn't just depression stuff. It was manic behavior. It was, it was really getting scary. And, um, I think what f- performing really did motivate me, um, in a big way because it made me so happy. It was kind of the first thing where I felt like I was allowed to say stuff. And it was the first time in my life where I dipped my toes into publicly speaking this. I was an improviser. I was doing a lot of improv shows. In the States, I think improv is a much, much bigger part of the comedy culture than it is elsewhere in the world. It's really become, I would say, sort of the dominant force in the comedy industry in the States. So many people who are on shows and in movies have an improv background now. And it was this really, really exciting thing to be a part of in its early days, 16 years ago. And... I would be doing improv scenes where I'd be playing a character who was depressed or a character who was a bully or got bullied. And no one knew that I was really processing some things from my real life with that. Eventually, performing became almost as problematic for me and my, my mental health experience because I was leaning on it so hard and that's not performing is not therapy and too many of us confuse it for that but I also it's so funny anyone who knew me in my youngest days and as an improviser I was always made fun of because I'd be up on stage and you know when we do long form comedy at the theater where I came up which means everybody's on stage at once and you're building like a 30 minute long piece together it's not games that get separated and you're all standing on stage while the different scenes happen and I'd be up there just kind of like shaking around and bouncing around and watching it and clear like really physically just like so like amped up and everybody used to be like oh man you're so into it you're so focused no, the truth was it was such an adrenaline rush that it was sending me into a manic fit. It's becoming this thing where it was like, like short circuiting my brain in its own right. One of the things that I think doesn't get talked about enough is that the mania side of things is arguably more dangerous than depression because depression is recognizable as a problem. Sadness, depression is not sadness, but people can see depression and equate it with things like sadness. Whereas mania you can be rewarded for. In the life of the fucking party. You're the most fun guy in the room. When you're the one who wants to stay up for 36 hours and no, let's everybody get in a car and just drive for four hours just so we can get pizza at this place I heard about. And then no, 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 let's keep doing more stuff and let's do this and that and blah, blah, blah. It can come off like, oh yeah, you're the most fun. But then what eventually happens is the people who know you best are the first ones to go, hey, this is really out of character and kind of weird. And then in my experience, what would happen is I'd be having these main mania fits and it's like and now i've been up for 36 hours with these people i barely know they think it's so fun and charming and now i'm in a situation where it's like 
once I normalize, I'm like, what am I doing here with these people who are dirtbags, who are willing to behave this way when it's not a mental problem, just because they're people who have, in my opinion, uh, not great priorities and what they want out of life. And uh, the mania is, is even scarier. So performing is kind of triggering a lot of that. And it became less about me trying to Initially, there was a wave of performing where I was like, oh my God, I get to say stuff. And that was beautiful. And then it kind of turned a corner where it was like, it's gone from that to I'm chasing the adrenaline and I'm chasing the attention and I'm, tra- I'm chasing the, the rush that comes with this because the rush feels better than depression. So I'm trying to have that all the time. But then the rush is just as dangerous and burns you out. And I've kind of indicated in the show, one thing that I've played with, it's kind of come and gone from the show is I try to make clear how when I was in my early twenties, I was just exhausted all the time because I was working and I was a student and I was trying to do comedy and this and that. And really what's underneath that is I was exhausted because my life was about chasing adrenaline to hide from the depression. I was chasing mania because that was preferable, but that was ultimately maybe even a bigger mistake. I really recognize that in, uh, to a to a lesser extent, but that model of like transforming from the person that you don't like about yourself and going, yeah. oh, performance. Now I've transformed into yes. a person that everybody likes, so but I that's... can like it. I can recognize that in myself. I see other comics doing yeah. it all the time. That's that. I think that's the often that's the kernel underneath when people come off stage and then try and smash the conversation. Right. They've roofed the gig, now they're going to roof the hang. Yeah, <laughs> like, and the people oh. who can't stop doing bits. Yeah. The people where it's like, we're still in the back of the bar and you won't let any of us go home because we can't get a e- word in edgewise to say goodnight because you won't stop doing bits. And people who won't leave the room until they can leave on a laugh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like, it's that thing where like, you know, as a stand-up, you can get that adrenaline rush and feel like a superhero 20 minutes at a time. And then you, but then you, what do you do the other 23 hours and 40 minutes of your day? You feel really, well, you sleep for eight of them. So then what about that other 15 hours? You feel pretty bad about yourself, you know? Um, or in many comedians cases, stay up drinking until three or four in the morning and then you go out and eat a meal as the sun comes up and then you try to sleep off the rest of the day until you, so you can wake up as close to your next gig as possible because you want to hide. Yep. And I lived that. I lived that and I've seen it lived so many times the least healthy behavior in the world he's just so much fun to spend time with isn't he what a lovely guy Uh, a whole other nearly an hour of that available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras when you join the mailing list so i I will blether at you in a little while about hell week um i'll talk to you about that in the waffle but for now that's pretty much it you can tweet me at comcompod you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com you can join the facebook group of course if you'd like to uh suggest guests or involve yourself with the uh, the increasing comedians comedian community there's lots of stuff going on at the moment i feel like i'm i'm promoing loads and loads of different things i've i've got a lot on which almost all of which is buoyed up by you i'll talk about hell week after i say goodbye now so if you'd like to stick around for the waffle please do but for now that concludes the podcast <laughs> oh wow so hell week it was so great, and so many of you came out. I was thrilled, man. Um, given that this is, for, for those of you that didn't already know this, I was trying to write a new show in a week. I kind of pinched the idea off the Ronnie Cheng episode, um, although he gave people free pizza. I didn't do that. <laughs> and uh, it was just an hour. It was just an hour a night at Angel Comedy at the Bill Murray in Angel, which is a, a fabulous uh, pay-what-you-want club. 
set up by comedians for comedians. I can't recommend that space enough. What a lovely bunch of people. And it's the sort of thing that I kind of had the idea for years ago and never did and, uh, you know, could never have done, could never have achieved what they had, uh, what they've, they've done. So um, it's, it, I just think it's going to become such an important part of comedy culture in, in London and in the UK. Um, who knows? So... I went and did the shows and I wrote all day and I did a gig one night and I wrote all day and listened back to it and wrote all the next day and redid it. And special mention must go. So three shows in total. Special mention must go to everyone that came out. Thank you to everyone. There's 40, I think we did 40, 20 and 20 people. So great to see pod fans there and uh, people who haven't come to see me before and very many people who have. And also Kate Webster, who is queen of the Comedians Comedian fans because uh, she came to all three nights. She came to two and then she teased me by pretending she wasn't coming to the third and then she came to the third, which was so great because she got to see the transformation, the metamorphosis of some of the ideas, the dropping of some and choosing of others and exploration. The Sunday show, it was kind of classic. Thanks to everyone that came to that, but I, I sort of started in a quite an odd, thoughtful pace, which was a, a deliberate decision on my part. But it, it kind of meant that I didn't blow enough wind into the the sails of some of the. <laughs> that's a terrible expression. It kind of meant that I didn't um, quite inhabit the stuff as creatively as, as I might have, but it was, it was worth trying. And there were some strong ideas in there, here and there. And one very nice lady, uh, as she left, she went, I don't think that was as bad as you thought it was. And I'm like, I, I didn't thought it was bad. It's just, it's a sluggish period in the life of the show. It's only November. Well, it was only November, for heaven's sake. Since then, the Monday, very different approach. New Kate was in, had to really make it different for her, which is very useful as sort of a, as an element of the process, but also just just hit the ground running, played it, played the room properly, played the gig, got loads of uh, wind blown into the sails. And that was really, really useful. And then Tuesday was useful again in its own way. And I'm just so grateful to, to people for coming out and, and supporting what I'm doing. So thank you to everyone that came to those. I'm, I've booked in to do them again in June. I was hoping to do them in February, March to do another little run like that. But uh, I think with so much touring going on possibly some uh, some exciting charlie big potatoes tour support gigs which I'll, I'll tell you about as and when they happen um and also some exciting foreign travel which i will tell you as soon as it's all signed and sealed but lots of fun things going i think with luck i'm going to end up doing the tour show I mean, like another 60 times, which I can't wait. This is, this is exactly what I wanted, exactly the position I wanted to be in. I think, have I talked about this before? You know there's something about travelling, hopefully. Tra- what's the phrase? Travelling, hopefully, is better than arriving, or to, it's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive. Yeah, arriving is great. But um, I think one of the things I've realised that I really love is to travel, hopefully. And I feel so privileged that comedy allows me to do that. You're, you're always on a track. There is you know, that thing that used to frustrate me, and I'm sure lots of us. There's no promotion. There's no, there's no, every time I used to hear about my partners kind of being uh, kind of promoted or moved on or being given kind of training and being moved into other roles within her, her work, which she's a, or was the, the managing editor of a science magazine. I feel so alienated from that. And I'd feel kind of jealous that in most careers, it seemed to me in certain other careers, there are processes in play, which, 
help you be the best you can be and give you training and suggest other forms and and roles for you. And of course, in comedy, it's all self-motivated. Used to really frustrate me. These days, I feel really excited by that because it all has to come from oneself. So, God, I'm really on one today, aren't I? (laughs) I'm bouncing around the room very happily. Um... I think that is actually something that's really exciting about it. And it was very interesting. I'll maybe talk about this more in next week's episode, which I'm going to release with Fern Brady. Brilliant comic. And she is one of the first people, I think, who has kind of... How can I how can I put this? She's sort of grown up with the podcast a little bit. Remember when like years ago I was going to do an open spot special? I remember her sending me a particularly bullish kind of, hey, you should do it. I'm an open spot. You should put me on the show. And now she's a, a brilliant comedian with a couple of hours under her belt. She had a sitcom pilot. And uh, it's really, I, I'm only treading carefully because I don't want it to look like I think I've had anything to do with any of her success or talent. But it's so exciting. Maybe that's why I'm in such a good mood. I just am so excited and doing those gigs at, at Angel Comedy as well to feel like, oh, we, we've got the opportunity to give to each other and to draw inspiration from one another and for all of this to feel a little bit less cold and lonely and a bit more like a thing that we can all do maybe maybe we should start promoting each other (laughs) that's a that's a nice idea maybe we should when we go and see each other's shows we should just tell it maybe we should do badges so on scout badges no it's too much (laughs) that's uh that's resides with the the graphs of the whimsy revolution some five or six years ago i just like that i feel at the moment like comedy is more of a community than i have felt in the past and not just a community i feel like it's more of or the potential is there for it to have slightly more of the the structure of a community I think there's another thing that I, another element of this. I saw a comic who I won't name on Facebook recently, who is a brilliant comic who I, I hope to have on the pod, but a very, very uh, professional, very experienced act who had a horrible time in a corporate and said, Oh my God, worst gig of my life. I'll tell you all about it tomorrow. So everyone was baited, sort of had baited breath. And then the next day on Facebook, he related the story of this awful, impossible, unplayable situation. And, uh, and everyone underneath was sort of being, um, you know, supportive and or <laughs> kind of faux mean about it. And I don't know, it just made me feel like there's there's more of a, a sense of uh, family. And, and with that, not just family, not just kind of friendships, but also structure as well. Angels made me think of that. Talking to Fern has made me think of that. Listening back to Chris Gethard has made me think of that. I think it's a good time it's a good we need a bit of that <laughs> sorry if my ramble last week about brexit and trump and everything else um but i do think we need some positivity and i'm drawing a lot of positivity from that at the moment i'm pleased those shows worked well it's turned into another bit of a ramble but i think it's a it's a happy one i've stopped you can probably hear in my voice that i've stopped bouncing excitedly about my room so that's all I have to say at the moment. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a great mood. Please do check out the extras at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras to hear more from Chris Gethard. There's some really worthwhile stuff on there. It's just lovely when you talk to someone who's so inspiring that you end up talking and talking and talking. It's a really lovely guy. Lots more exciting guests to come. There's a couple I haven't even mentioned. I'm very exciting about, excited about. And um, uh, do jump on that Ellison John show podcast live podcast at soho theater on the 23rd i'm just thinking do i have anything else to promote 
Uh, you know, it's just the usual stuff. Join the Facebook group. You can follow my Facebook fan page, all the usual channels. Email me. Get in touch. Walk up to me in the street. Press money into my hands and say something cool, which a couple of people have done recently. Very nice it was too. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.